while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and she laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. God had this messy plan, a plan to save the world. And to do that, he was going to send his son. Where does the God of the universe send his son? Where, where, where does the King of Kings and Lord of Lords come? To a barn, a stable, a, a manger of all places. Certainly no place fit for a king. But then again, this wasn't any ordinary king. When I say it was messy, I mean messy. It, it was a barn, a stable, right? So you've got animals and animal stuff, manure, mud, a pitiful place for people, much less a place for the king of kings to be born. Why would God do that? Well, I can't tell you for sure, because Isaiah explains to us that his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. But that same prophet, 400 years before Jesus was born, said, all we like sheep have gone astray, each of us to our own way, and that he has laid our iniquities on him. You see, Jesus came to a messy place. Oh, yeah, a barn, a manger, that's messy. But he came to a messy world. Why? Because the shepherd was coming to take care of the sheep, to prepare a way for them to go home. That's what a shepherd does. He lives where the sheep are. He sleeps where they sleep. He eats where they eat. It got Jesus in trouble. Why did Jesus eat with sinners? Because that's what the shepherd does. An angel appeared to the shepherds in the field and said, this will be a sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in cloths and laying in a manger. A sign. You ever wondered what that sign was? A sign for what? Maybe a sign that Jesus is accessible to everyone. A sign that the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills can relate to a homeless person. Because Jesus never had a home, never had a place to rest his head. Maybe it was a sign that God would have nothing to do with the social status of mankind. A sign that he detests the splendor of humans it's not worthy of him but it was a sign for us that we should follow suit in fact the Apostle Paul later on would write we should have the same attitude as Christ Jesus although he was the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but that he made himself nothing becoming a servant being made in human likeness a servant you see, being a servant is, is messy. And Jesus set this incredible example for us. I mean, he got down on his knees and he washed feet. The God of the universe, the God who deserved the best of everything, got on his knees. He's the God who came to the world and was laid in a manger, a feed trough of all places. Why such a messy place? 
because he was following a messy plan. So needless to say, that very first Christmas was dirty. It was grimy. It was, it was filthy. <laughs> but thank God it was. Because without it, what a mess we'd be in. It has been an amazing season. Just a week ago, when we gathered together on Good Friday, an opportunity for each of us to be able to walk through and to, well, think maybe a little bit more about what our Savior did for each one of us. It was an opportunity to remember and to reflect and to thank God and to, to leave in a mournful way, literally. And then last Sunday, it was Easter. It was the day that we celebrated our Lord's resurrection. It was a great celebration because it was a celebration about life. Well, last week was an amazing week. This last Wednesday, we had a grand Awana celebration. A time when, well, kids were honored for learning God's Word, for thanking the staff who faithfully served with all of you parents over these years, and in particular this season, where we might be able to encourage kids to well, memorize God's Word, to hide God's Word in your heart. We're going to talk a little bit more about this just a little later, so I'd like you to keep this picture in mind. You see, it's an exciting time right now. It's spring. In spite of the snow, there are still little green things shooting up all over. There are leaves beginning to form, and we're taking a breath, and, and life is shouting. It's a time to focus on renewal. Well, it's also a time in the church to focus on renewal. Crosspoint Koinonia is all about rich relationships. It's a place to grow. It's a place where people do life together. It's critical for the journey. I'm not sure if you heard that part. It's critical for the journey. Oh, some of you, and again, have bought into our culture which says, I can do life by myself. I really don't need anybody. But you know what? As a pastor, as a husband, as a father, as a grandfather, just walking through life with people, I realize that it's hard. And we need people to walk with us through this journey. There's a handout in your bulletin again. And it talks about Koinonia. It talks about all the different places you might be able to get connected. Say, oh my, Rick, there's so many choices. So many things. Well, it starts off in a gigantic way talk to, talking about missional community. And we're going to chat about that in a moment. 
But the truth is we want a bunch of places where you might be able to get in, connect with one another, so that you might be able to get to know God better, the Scriptures better, and each other better. Because if you don't have that group with you, no matter how much celebration you have, no matter how exciting life is, there are rough times. And there's times you need one another. You know, I want to encourage you because there are some that even need action this week. That'll be starting. There are life groups and there are classes and all those different things that are there. But this week, there's something called Hope for the Journey for some of our women. I want to encourage you to look at that and see if that might be something that might encourage your heart. There's also something called the beginning group. Some of you, as I've chatted with you all, Rick, you know, I, I'm really newer to the church, and I've never been part of a, a life group, and it's a little confusing. Well, we're going to start this Friday in a beginning group, one that maybe is not too familiar with this church or even what groups are all about. But we're going to walk through and spend six weeks together And I want to encourage you and teach you and help you get into what we would call a group that's just starting out. There's other things that are coming up. I'm so excited about boot camp, spiritual boot camp. Be able to encourage people 12 critical lessons that will be able to help people walk with God, get connected with God. And actually use it as you tutor others in your discipleship journey. You look at all that, and some of you came back last week and said, Rick, it's, it's some of it's specific and some of it's not in the, in the handout. Well, actually, it's designed to be a little vague. We want to help you get connected. In fact, I want to help you get connected. There are so many different things that are going on. Things that are happening, like I said, right now. But as you connect my emails at the end, you know, we'll be able to get you situated. I'll be able to ask you right questions. I'll be able to get you in right groups or classes so that you might be able to grow in a new and a vital and a fresh way. You know, one of the things we're really going to be highlighting is this missional community. A time where, where we can gather together with saints in a very wonderful and nurturing way. In fact, two of the guys who uh, are kind of organizing this missional community, well, they, they made a clip. I'm going to show you that clip in a second, but I want you to pay a special attention to Claire. Claire is one of Dave's granddaughters. And she kind of sticks her head in there, you know. Uh, But you know what? We use the video anyway. Let's watch. Good morning, Cross Point Church. William Light here. And Dave Sheedlow. Awesome. We're very excited about this new uh, ministry that's going to be starting. Um, Last week in your bulletin, there was an insert about all these different life groups. And the very first group on there was a group that was titled Missional Community. And Dave... Would you be able just to share with us what exactly this awesome, exciting new ministry of Missional Community is all about? Yeah, it's. Uh, I was really excited when Rick had uh, talked to me about this. So I was uh, 
Linda and I got together and we decided this is something we'd love to do. It's getting families together of 30 to 40 people, uh, whether you're single, whether you're um, married, you got kids, everybody is invited to be along in this. And it's, we're gonna get together and we're gonna learn to love our God and grow in our relationship with God. And we're gonna learn to grow in our relationship with each other. And we're gonna grow, learn to grow in our relationship with people outside the church and, and learn how to reach them. It's, uh, it's gonna be an exciting time of learning. And actually, pretty. It's gonna be. It's gonna be pretty cool. It's gonna be. Um, I'm excited uh, about what's coming. Um, and there's gonna be more to come. We're gonna have another video that's gonna go into more details. But the most important detail in time uh, that is is May 18th. We're gonna be meeting at the church for our very first missional community. So May 18th, from 4:30 to 7:30 at Gross Point Church is when we're gonna meet. So we're actually gonna be in the lobby at our brand new welcome center. For uh, if you want to register, if you're like, you know what, I'm down with this. I want to do this. I want to be a part of this. You can register with us right now. Um, or if you just want more questions, if you just want to talk to us, like, you know, hey, what exactly is this? A little bit more, and we'll we'll talk to you. So again, we'll be outside at the Welcome Center. Stop on by. All right. Thank you very much. See you there. As I said, this is a season of celebrating life. Another way we celebrate life here, especially right after Easter, is to have a baptismal service. You come next week and things again will look a little different, all right? Our stage seems to be morphing in different ways and so on. And it's going to morph again because we're going to have an opportunity to be able to hear people's testimonies when they were dead to when they met Jesus and became alive. It's an exciting. It's all about encouragement. It's about, well, obeying God in the next step. If any of you have not been baptized and would love to be able to be baptized, you can talk to us today, all right? We'd love to walk with you on this, and we're going to bring back obedience a little bit later on in the message, too. But there's another thing. Tomorrow night and Tuesday night, we want to encourage you men. We want to end, well, show the clip. Hey there, it's Priscilla, and I am so excited because coming up soon is an opportunity for you to take the men in your life, your sons, your nephews, your husbands, your brothers, your grandfathers, to a movie event that's going to bless their lives. My dad, along with some other incredible godly men, have produced a film called Kingdom Man. It's only going to be in theaters for a couple of nights, and this is your opportunity to take them all into a theater where they can be encouraged in what it means to be a man who follows hard after God's own heart. This movie's going to be opening up in theaters all over the country, and you're not going to want to miss the opportunity for them to be encouraged, for them to be inspired, and for them to be, be challenged. My husband, my brothers, my father, my kids, they're going to be there in the seats anchored and ready to hear what it means to be a kingdom man. Don't miss it. Wouldn't you like the men in your life to follow hard after God? Oh, ladies, you can go to make sure they, you know, you understand the message and can remind the men over and over and over and over again in your life. I did not use the word nag. All right. I did use encourage. 
And we would, again, we, we are all about helping people on their journey. And this is an amazing opportunity, I think, for the men, for the boys, to understand the great privilege they have. Because sad to say, the majority of the time, families only go as far as their, well, men are willing to take them. This is an amazing thing. It's so very, very important. Now, some of you are wondering, Rick, are you ever going to get to the message? Don't worry. We're there. All right? We are there. But you may wonder, like, okay, we had Easter last week. You're, you're going to, like, talk about the two biggest stories in all of the Bible two weeks in a row. Yeah, it's the Christmas story today. If some of you are newer to our fellowship, what happens is we started a long, long time ago, uh, well, taking a journey all the way through the Bible. We started off at a garden, and eventually we're going to end at a garden. But as we travel through the scriptures a few weeks back, we ended up in Malachi. That was the last book in the Old Testament. And because of Easter and Good Friday, we kind of rearranged a little bit of the schedule. But now we're back on schedule. And we're going to continue to focus on the story of God. It's been intriguing and enlightening and puzzling and wonderful and complex. It's been a story of pursuit, a story of rejection, reconciliation, restoration, and rejection again and again and again. It's been 400 years since Malachi, the last prophet, wrote and represented God. His message was harsh and his message was loving. But for 400 years, God seemed to be asleep. Nothing was happening. And I'm not saying 40 years or 40 days or 40 hours in our culture. That would be so long. This most familiar story is a story to be told over and over and over again. But I'm going to pray before we jump in and focus on our long-awaited Messiah. Father, we come before you, and we recognize that your spirit is so active. We know, God, that we need your word. We need to be able to understand what you want us to hear today. I pray, Father, that, that I wouldn't get in your way. I pray that, that these words would be your words, and that you would teach us today. We thank you for all those faithful teachers and churches all over who are proclaiming the gospel, who are encouraging people to walk with you, to be salt and light in our worlds. We're so grateful. Thank you, Father. We love you. In your name, amen. Amen. God the Father loved the world so much that he sent God, his Son. God the Father is always involved, well, with everything. But God the Son, the Messiah, 
the king of kings, arrives in a most unusual way. A way, like I said, we usually focus on in December. But it's a way that we're going to look at today. I'm going to focus on the three players in this drama. A mom, a dad, and a baby. We're going to start off with Mary. Now, Mary, I just want to warn you, I'm going to be using the characters out of the movie The Star. And not just to relate with some of our younger people, but the truth is, as I look at our work and I try to figure out how to, well, encourage you in the messages that I speak, it's really hard to find young Marys and young Josephs. And the truth is, as we begin to share, you're going to understand this. But Mary grows up in a small town of Nazareth. I I need to put this in perspective. Most archaeologists will say maybe about 200 people lived in that town. Probably 150. Not many of us know how that would be. To literally live in a town of 150. When I was a freshman in high school, there were 150 boys that came out for the basketball team. Folks, 150 people living in this town. To put it in perspective, most, again, experts would say Jerusalem, which was the, well, the New York or the L.A., but I will say Chicago, all right, of their world, 100,000. It's, it's not a big number. It really isn't. So we've got 150 people in this little town. It's a tiny farming town. It's high up on a hill, away from the main trade routes. Mary was probably a pretty normal, homeschooled, betrothed, 14-year-old. Wow. We mentioned this before. It's so odd in our culture. First of all, the betrothal type thing. Where literally parents would agree with a gentleman who was usually five to seven years older, who'd be already be working in a trade, But when you were 13, 14, or 15 years old as a little girl, well, you would get married. Let me tell you just a little bit about all the kids in the first century, if you had Hebrew parents. By the time you were five years old, five years old, that was the time you began to get Torah training. That means understanding the first five books of the Bible. And you start to get stories. You start to learn all about the God of the universe. By the time you got ten, both guys and girls, they would begin to memorize the Torah at ten. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. Most of the time, the teaching and the training and the memory would happen in the synagogue. It was a central area, all right? And the priests and the scribes, they would partner together with the parents. By the time you were 13, 
you are expected to know the first five books of the Bible, along with many of the stories, along with many of the prophets. And at this moment, again, culturally, women would then change gears and prepare to become a wife for the most part. That's the 13-year-old. Men, 13-year-olds, they would either go for another couple years of training, more in-depth training in the synagogue, or they would start their trades at that moment, their apprenticeship, so that by the time they were 18 or 19, they would be ready to marry the 13 or the 14 or the 15-year-old. Put that in perspective. You, you have to. All the people we're going to talk about, they were amazing kids. They were trained. I tell you, this must inspire parents. Five-year-olds? Really, Rick? They're going to get this intense training? Yeah, that's what would happen. But Mary, she's a normal kid. She started learning about God at five. She started memorizing at 10. And at 13 or thereabouts, she would be ready. The scriptures tell us she was betrothed to a man named Joseph. She was already preparing to go start her life. Something amazing happened. Her life radically changed when an angel visited her. And what I would ask you to do, even though I know it might be dangerous, I'd like you to shut your eyes right now. And I'd like you to listen to what happens in Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 26 through 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her. (gasps) Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. But how can this happen? I am a virgin. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son, and is now in her sixth month. For the word of God will never fail. I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. There isn't any way that any 14-year-old is going to be prepared for this. An angel shows up. First of all, says, hey, you are an unbelievable young lady. God's hand is on you. And by the way, you're pregnant by the Holy Spirit. 
what are you talking about? How is this possible? I, my mother's been preparing me. This doesn't happen. And after she gets the explanation, a 14-year-old girl whose life is going to be completely turned around, whose, repta- whose reputation will be totally tarnished from that moment on, because there isn't one person, including Joseph in the beginning, that's going to believe, are you serious? Yeah. And her response a 14-year-old's response. I am the Lord's servant. You are God. You are sovereign. I'm not even understanding all the things that you are talking about, but I'm your servant. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to obey you. And then she says, I hope everything you said will truly happen. Unbelievable. Mary's a hero. She's a hero because up to first 13 or 14 years, she learned about God. She understood how big God was and how unbelievably diverse his actions were. And she said, I'm going to trust you, God. I know my life is so different. And just even the reputation part, how do you even put in your brain on you're going to raise God? How do you do that? The child that you have will always be right. Whoa, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, whoa, no. No, it wouldn't. Then we have Joseph. Joseph we don't actually know a whole lot about either, but, but the truth is he grows up in Nazareth. He is probably a normal betrothed, I'm going to say 18-year-old. Because again, normally guys were married by 17 through 19, a little bit longer. All right, so we're going to jump right in the middle. He has chosen the trades. He has fallen, well, agreed to take Mary, unbelievable girl. And remember, by the time you were betrothed to the time you actually consummated your marriage or had the celebration in the Hebrew culture was about one year. So this is during that one year where he's building a house, he's preparing, she's learning how to be a wife and a mother. And she shows up and tells Joseph she's pregnant. Oh. Shut your eyes one more time. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son. And you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born. And Joseph named him Jesus. Culturally, it could not be more devastating. An angel appears, clarifies the situation, and Joseph literally has a choice to make. Yes, he's heard it from an angel. Yes, he understands the situation. But he, along with Mary, recognized for the rest of his life, nobody is going to believe that. Joseph's response also tells it all. He did as the Lord commanded him, even abstained from intimacy until after Jesus was born. He took her into his household in spite of all the talk, but he honored God by not having that most intimate of all relationships until Jesus was born. That's a big deal. I don't know how many guys, 18-year-olds, could live with a woman in your house and stay pure. Joseph was amazing. He also, at five years old, began to learn about God. At ten years old, he started to memorize. How cool would that be? Every tradesman you know knew the first five books of the Bible. All right? And by the time 13 came along, not sure if he went right into the trades as normal, or if he even stayed a few more years learning before he went into the trades. But what's so cool about Joseph is what I want you to to hear is yes, he said, yes, God, I'm going to do what you said. But he continues this pattern. If you look in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, all right? After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. And the angel said, stay there till I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for this child and kill. Verse 14, that night Joseph left for Egypt. Didn't hesitate. Again, this is really inconvenient, God. I'm from Nazareth. Egypt? Go. He does. And then again, after a few years, you've jumped down to verse 21. Um, Herod dies. It's safe for him to go back. This is what he gets. Verse 21. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus, his mother. Just a few verses before, an angel appeared and said, you got to go now, Joseph. He goes, okay. It's amazing to me. So Mary just says, yes, God. Joseph just says, yes, God. And now there's Jesus. Jesus, Son of God. Jesus, born in a stable. Jesus, the King of kings, had a choice. And he chose a manger. Jesus, 
returns to Nazareth with his parents as a toddler and grows up there. Again, we, we know a few things, but he probably was, again, a very normal Jewish boy, except he was also God. He grew up in a rather poor family. He, again, had the normal training. At five, he started learning about God, his father. And about 10, he started memorizing, just like all the other boys did, and started learning. And what's so unique, as he did this, he was living with the illegitimate tag. He knew it. He had to. Everybody in the town, 150 people, knew it. Wow. The king of kings grew up with his brothers and sisters in this small town culture. But something really interesting happens. At 12, this is about a year before he has totally to be able to recite these first five books. Kind of his entrance into adulthood, all right, in a good Hebrew home. But if you turn with me to Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 47, something very interesting. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. After the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth. Let me just remind you, it's a five-day journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem, and afterwards, it's a five-day walking journey back to Nazareth. Okay? So they started home, this five-day journey. But Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at all because probably a giant group moving because they assumed he's among the other travelers. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking around for him among their relatives and friends. When they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. Three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them and asking questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. Folks, again, we, we, we can beat up Mary and Joseph, and how come they don't keep better track of their kids, I don't know. But I know this. For four days, at least three, Jesus is hanging out at the synagogue, at the temple. And he's talking back and forth theologically with these guys. And they're going, I, I don't know if we've met a 12-year-old like this. Is this sense like he really knows God? <laughs> yes, he does. But it was amazing. It was so very, very cool. Again, how cool is this? Could a 12-year-old... Again, I met a few 11-year-olds this morning. I asked their ages. But could a 12-year-old sit down and have a theological discussion and understand all that God is? Our kids, again, are probably underdeveloped. We can encourage them. We can strengthen them. So by the time they get 13 or 14, and they literally end up into high school, they can stand. They can be salt and light. They can be unbelievably strong because they've learned verses back at Awana and because they've been nurtured in children's ministries. 
and because they've had homes over and over. And again, some can be guilty, and I'm not even trying to do that at the moment. What I'm trying to say is, it is amazing. But what I want to also go one other area. Jesus was obedient to come into this earth. But Jesus, it says, was also obedient to his parents. Let me, let me just point this out. His, flawed, his parents were really cool. But he was obedient, the scriptures tell us, to his flawed parents. That means parents that didn't always make the right decisions. Hopefully they apologized correctly. But what's so amazing is that these young people learned authority. And I can tell you right now, there's 30 and 40 and 50 and 60-year-olds right here that still struggle with authority. They still struggle with their rights, with how they treat their bosses, how they talk about their bosses. It's amazing. Because as you walk with God, each one of us begin to see those in authority differently. We do. And each one of us have an opportunity to represent God well by listening to those in authority. Wow. So he was obedient to his flawed parents. Jesus was God. So he was different than Mary and Joseph. But if you go back to John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14. Again, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Speaking of Jesus. The Word, in verse 14, became human and made his home or tabernacled or lived among us. And he was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Jesus was obedient, submissive to his Father. Read through these Gospels. In his life, in temptation... In his death to the cross, one of the things we just got through reading. Father, if you can take away this crucifixion thing, that'd be great. But your will, not mine. If you turn to Philippians with me, chapter 2, it puts it all in perspective. The Apostle Paul basically said this. He said, I I want you to live differently as Christians. I want you to stay connected with God. I want you to, well, look at verse 3. Don't be selfish. Don't be selfish. Don't be self-centered. Because God followers aren't self-centered. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of yourselves is better than, uh, thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Then verse 5, unbelievable. You must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. Though he was God, this is Christ's attitude, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and took a humble servant of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the highest place of honor. 
He was so, Jesus was so intimate with his father and so connected with his father that he listened to his father in every area. Every area. You know, as I look at these three individuals, I get inspired. When I focus on the main players of today's story, they all knew God well, all of them. And we can grow in that even now. That's why a message like this is given right after Easter, because we have so many guests. We have so many folks. And, and well, sometimes we even get stagnant. But each one of us can know God better. Our lives will be different. They all humbled themselves. They all submitted to God ultimately. I can tell you this, that when I see a person or encounter a person that has a tough time submitting to authority, very, very few times do they walk with God well. I'm just letting you know. Because if you can't submit to a mom or a dad who you see, it's really hard to submit to a God you can't. They all humbled themselves. They all honored God by listening and submitting to God immediately. But one part you may not have noticed, they all suffered for their obedience. Every one of them. Every one of them. You know what this story reveals to me? God loves us. God loves us. It teaches me about what God's servants look like. And it also helps me understand God's ways. If I even begin to think that I know how God works... It's crazy. I'm going to pray. And right after we pray, we're going to sing a song of submission. A song that I pray that you can sing from the bottom of your heart. You know, at the end of our service, there's always a prayer team here. And, and maybe God is working. We would love to meet together with you and to pray with you if you'd like to do that. But right now, let's pray. Father, we thank you. We are grateful for the way you continually pursue us. The way that you love us in spite of us. You showed it when you spread your arms. But you showed it when you came as a baby and was put in a manger. None of us would want to be treated that way. But you listened to your dad. To a place where eventually you were maligned. By the people that you died for. You were beaten by the ones you shed your blood for, for me and for everyone in this room. God, we are so grateful for your amazing love and we are so grateful that we can trust you, that we can trust you with our lives. 
Father, I would not want to live a day without you. You are my good shepherd. You take care of me. You protect me. You walk with me in hard times and in good. We thank you, Lord. We love you, Lord. And pray this in your name. Amen.